0: So listen, this morning I'm excited. I'm excited because as you know, we don't have a lot of guest speakers here at City. We don't. But this morning we have a very special guest speaker. His name is Michael Ramsden. Michael is involved with, yes, he's involved with Ravi Zacharias International Ministry. Michael is the director of their Apologetics Institute at Oxford University in Oxford, England. I've actually had the blessing, our families were at the same Christian camp and we vacationed together for a week. We had a lot of fun. And then my son, while he was studying in England, actually went to stay with the Ramsden family just for a little bit and uh, have a little home cooking. So how many of you who are in university, grad school, whatever, you know how important home cooking is? So anyway, with that and without any further ado, let's give Michael Ramsden a warm City Church welcome as he comes on out.
1: Thank you, Pete. Wow, well, it's, um, it's really good to be able to be here with you. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to having a couple of days here uh, in the city as we not just have this day with you, but also a couple of days at UVA um, over these next few days. Uh, Those of you who've heard me before will be able to immediately tell I'm suffering with a little bit of a cold. Um, It's a very exotic one. I haven't just brought it all the way from England. I caught it off a guy who'd flown over to spend three days with me from Singapore. So this thing's flying around the world. If you want to be the next one to take it on onto your community, just come and give me a hug at the end of the service, and uh, we can spread it around as, as much as necessary. <clears throat> but hopefully my voice will hold out for the duration of the message, and we'll get to the end, but there's always the possibility that the Lord may be cut short, i going to say to you. Um, now, let me um, uh, just start, if I can, um, by just trying to outline a little bit what I want to try and share with you this, this morning, because in one sense, it's quite a big issue to get our hearts around. At another level, it's really quite it's, uh, straightforward and simple. And that tends to be the case with a lot of the big truth claims that we often wrestle with and try and struggle with and try and get to the bottom of. Very often, in all the complexity, there's also quite a, just a deep, simple profundity. But I can remember now as many years ago, I was listening to my, what was going to be my father-in-law preaching in his church in England. And my wife and I were engaged. We were looking forward to getting married in about six months' time. And as he was speaking, he gave an illustration in which he talked about the fact that how his Love for his wife was much stronger now, after all those decades of marriage, than it was when he first started. And I remember when he said that, thinking there was something wrong with the guy, because I was, you know, looking forward to getting married in about six months' time, and the way I felt about it was this. I can remember thinking, there's no more intense feeling I could be experiencing than I am right now. I mean, I am literally just desperate to get married, and it's all I can think about. And so clearly, I thought there was something wrong with my father-in-law, you know, clearly his love was a little bit lukewarm, you know, when he went into this marriage, and then over the decades it slowly warmed up, where as far as I could see, I was burning with a white-hot intensity of passion, and therefore it seemed to me the only possible way would be going down. The question was, how do you maintain it? Well, this year my wife and I will celebrate 25 years of marriage, and um, we'll be going off on our 25th wedding anniversary, and now I know exactly what my father-in-law was talking about. Because after those 25 years of marriage, I now know something which is deeper, more intense, more intimate than anything I could have possibly imagined 25 years ago. Uh, My wife and I were talking about what we'd like to do for our wedding anniversary, and um, she's never been to the Isle of Skye, which is a large island just off the coast of Scotland, and she was saying, hey, why don't we fly up um, to Edinburgh or Glasgow, rent a car, spend a few days just driving around, explore the Isle of Skye, find a nice place to stay by the coast, and that's exactly what we're planning to do. She's quite romantic, my wife, and so she was saying, hey, maybe we could rent a really nice sports car like an Aston Martin. That would be fun. Um, But personally, I believe it's important for everyone's development of their true character that they learn to live with a deep sense of disappointment. And um, I'll be uh, taking this opportunity as a teaching experience. Now, what this goes to show is very often the depth of meaning that we're looking for in this world and in this life, we actually find through very unexpected means it's not just that we find things in unexpected places it also comes through an unexpected way i was reading a, um, a book recently i don't know if any of you've seen it when breath becomes air by paul calineciats really quite remarkable book and in it he talks about the in it in that book he talks about the fact that we need to experience life experience meaning and not just study it so although the study of meaning is very important it has to be experienced in our life as well now when we hear a sentence like that what we often then think is, well, what we're talking about, therefore, is an intensity of experience, which is what I was thinking about when I was listening to my father-in-law talking about love. But actually, that's not really what he means. It's true that we have to experience meaning. It's just the way that comes about is very different to the way we think. Because right at the very heart of all of this type of meaningful engagement is the idea of commitment. Commitment is what actually undergirds, feeds, fuels, flames into into passion and into an intense form of heat. All of these other drives that we look for in our life in order to have a meaningful life. We're really looking for commitment. In his uh, book, uh, When Breath Becomes Air, he actually writes this, and it's an amazing story of a doctor. He passes away very, very young. So the book was published posthumously. He wrote posthumously, gosh, this cold is going to really mess up the delivery of the message, isn't it? Um, When he was in his mid-30s. And it's really quite interesting to read something written at one level by someone so young who has so much insight. And he's writing the book now knowing that he's going to die. So he's talking about all of his desires, he's examining his life, and all of the wrestles that he went through. And then at one point he recounts something. And he talks about when he was studying at Yale, at the medical faculty there, training to be a doctor. And then he recounts a a dispute that rose amongst the, st- the students at the time, an emotion and a debate that was actually debated amongst the students at the time. And here's how he describes it. He says the students at Yale argued that the words insisting that we doctors place our patients' interests ahead of our own be removed. At one level, it's entirely reasonable. That is how 99% of people select their jobs pay, work, environment, hours. But that's the point putting lifestyle first is how you find a job, not a calling. You see what he's saying? The students were debating that doctors should cease to say we put our patients' interests ahead of our own. And you can understand that. He says, but if that's what you want, if that's what you're looking for, in this world you're going to find a job, but you're not going to find a calling. Calling isn't just something that tells you what to do, it's also something that has control over your life. It's something which you are completely committed to, which is bigger and greater and deeper than yourself. And I think as he was writing his words now, reflecting back at towards the end of his life about what it really meant to be alive, I think this is when we begin to see that, he, that there is something that we're looking for that isn't so obvious always, but when we dig into it, it's actually worth making the dig. Now, all of us in this world, we want to have a meaningful existence. We're all looking for something where we hope that somehow we'll feel that our life will be fulfilled. It, won't, it will not be wasted in any kind of way. Now, if that is true, our greatest fear in life, therefore, shouldn't be the fear of failure. It should be the fear of succeeding at something which ultimately doesn't really matter. And so, therefore, we are looking, therefore, how to define ourselves and find our place in this world. Now, what is interesting is once you jettison God out of the picture and you're asking those big questions about meaning, the question is, what are we committed to? What do we actually stand for? And what's the point of all of this? I read a very interesting book by a professor of English literature in England called Professor Terry Eagleton a little while ago. He's a very well known communist thinker, probably one of the leading sort of Marxist uh, uh, pro- propagators of Marxist thought in Europe. Um, and it's really very, very stimulating. But in his very last book that he's written, he relates how that when we got rid of God in the 60s, we thought we could replace God with culture. In other words, culture, music, art, literature, sports, all of those questions, that would be what we could all rally around. That is what would help identify who we are and give us a direction of something to pursue. But then he goes on to write something fascinating uh, in that book. He says this. He says, culture has become a challenge. Culture is concerned with questions of identity, language, symbol, affiliation, and so on things that should bind us together. However, in recent times, these things have become politi- politically problematic and now appeal to culture has become the language of conflict, not of unity. In other words, having jettisoned God and think we could replace God with culture at the heart of our society, all of that debate about culture has now become the language which divides us and now we divide ourselves over questions of identity, language, symbol, meaning, and so on. It's not the rallying call that pulls us all together. It's the very language which we use to split ourselves apart. So in that book, he raises the question, is it possible for us to find meaning, identity, belonging? you are talking about doing a course of rootedness here. What does it actually mean to belong, to be part of something, to, belong, to, be, to be involved with it? And he says, in the absence of God, he says, I'm concluding the answer to that is no. It's impossible to find anything to replace him right at the centre of any society, which gives us those rallying points to come around. And so we now increasingly find ourselves living in a fragmented world and a fragmented society. It's not just that we're not sure exactly necessarily why we're here, we're not even sure how we even think about questions of commitment. Because commitment is a moral process by which you give yourself to something which you're convinced is good and true and right, and you're also convinced that it's actually really worthwhile making a sacrifice for. A couple of years ago, I was invited to speak at a um, memorial service at Westminster Abbey uh, or to be part of a weekend of events um, where they were laying a memorial stone for C.S. Lewis. And it was to commemorate the centenary um, uh, of his life. And they wanted to lay this big stone in the floor. And it was really quite funny because if you go to Westminster Abbey, you'll see there were all kinds of famous writers, philosophers, artists. They all have memorial stones in the Abbey. And because people go to them and touch them, over hundreds of years of people touching them, they tend to wear off the engraving and they all become bowed, you know, because most people touch the middle. So you can read the first and the end bit, you just can't see what was in the centre of it. So with C.S. Lewis's memorial stone, they knew lots of people would want to come and touch it, so they ordered an incredibly hard stone that required a specialist to come and carve it. And what they wanted to do was to carve into the stone, you know, know, like a sort of coming at an angle, so it gave a 3D effect, a very famous saying by C.S. Lewis, where he said, I believe in God in the same way I believe in the sun, not because I look at it, but because by it I see everything else. The trouble was, was the stone was so hard, engraving took much longer than they had anticipated. So as we'll be giving our instructions, when they had invited in the mayor and all these political dignitaries and they filled the abbey, we were all then told, look, as the, the people who are involved in this ceremony, you'll be allowed to go right up to the stone. Everybody else will be directed around it, but you'll be allowed to go right up. He says, but whatever you do, don't touch it. Because we haven't finished carving it, so we've had to employ an artist using different colors chalk to make it look like it's been engraved, but it hasn't. (laughs) And I have to say, it was like a very clever 3D illusionary effect that they had. So we had this big stone in the floor and this amazing ceremony. And afterwards, this um, British Army general had asked me whether I'd like to go out for lunch with him at his club in London. And I thought, well, this sounds like an offer too good to refuse. And so I said yes. And now we're sitting having lunch. And as we're having lunch... He begins to pep him with all kinds of questions. Why do you believe this? Why do you say that? What about this? What about that? And so on. He's just firing one question after another. And after about two and a half hours of him asking me questions, I sort of lean forward and I say, General, I'd like to ask you a question. And he said, what's that? I said, well, I've been thinking about this for a while because I find so many people in life and they're not rooted or grounded anywhere. So many young people feel they're just drifting through. I said, now, when I was 15 years old, I knew what I wanted to do with my life. I wasn't a Christian at the time. I wanted to do a law degree, become very rich, and have a convertible Ferrari. Well, I did the law degree, I got converted. I don't have the Ferrari, but my life is much more fulfilled than I thought it was going to be. I said, look, my life direction changed, as I've been sharing with you, but I was committed to achieving something, and in part, that's what I gave myself to. I was working for it. I said, but forget about being 15, and forget about being 25. I now meet 35-year-olds who are drifting through life, not committed to anything. They're just drifting through. And the general said, what's your question? I said, my question is this. How do you breed leadership in the absence of commitment? And he sat back in his chair and he looked at me. And he said, that's a very good question. He says, what you don't know about me is for the last few years, I've been in, charge of, been in charge of officer selection and recruitment for the British Armed Services. And this is one of our number one problems. We have people who join and they're willing to try it for a couple of years, but they're not committed to it. They're not willing to give themselves to it. He says, and it's very hard, he says, to breed leadership and officers in the absence of people who are really committed to something and know what they stand for. So I just filed that away in the back of my mind and a couple of hours later I was in a department store and I was buying a few provisions because my wife and kids were coming down to London for the weekend because I was staying overnight and I was going to be speaking in a church the next morning. And as I was at the counterpane I could hear the guy in front of me talking and I could tell that he was from the States. And so I ended up at Kilt Till next to him and I turned to him and I said, are you from America? He said, "Yes." I said, yeah, I said, the accent gives it away. I said, why are you here? He said, well, my wife and I, it's our anniversary. We've come to England. She loves the theatre. I hate the theatre, he said. I can't stand it. He said, she's watching some kind of play, and when it finishes, we're going to go out for dinner together. It was a matinee performance. And so I got talking to him, and um, we sat down, and and I just said to him, "Um, what do you do? And he said, well, he said, I'm retired now, but I used to help run the LAPD. And I smiled, looked at him, and I said, I know exactly what you do because I've seen all the movies. (laughs) And he um, reacted just like you did just now. And we started to have this amazing conversation. After about 40 minutes or so, I said, can I ask you a question? I was just having lunch with a general. And I asked him the same question that I asked the general. How do you breed leadership in the absence of commitment? And again, he just sat back in his chair. And then he says, Michael, for the last five years of my life, I was in charge of officers' training for the LAPD. He says, this was our number one problem. He says, we flew in consultants, motivational speakers. We spent millions of dollars trying to solve this problem. He says, we have so many people now in positions of leadership who just don't command the respect of those underneath them. He says, in the absence of commitment, I don't think you can breed leadership, and it's one of the biggest challenges we currently face. So it's not just in the areas of love and work and life that we're wrestling with this question of, Commitment, it affects every single area of meaningful engagement in this world, including leadership itself. And we seem to be living in a world where people are increasingly standing for nothing apart from themselves. We don't know what they're actually committed to. Now, with that as a backdrop, what I'd like to do is I'd like to read to you some very famous words that Jesus Christ spoke out of John chapter 10. And then have a little look at what exactly on earth is going on here. Because I think what he says here shines a light into this particular issue with particular brilliance. Now, it's a fairly long reading. I'm going to read to you the first 21 verses of John chapter 10. Now, if you live in the kind of city I live in, um, most people who read John chapter 10, the academic theologians, see this as a collection of loosely related sort of sayings. Does that make sense? Things that were said in different times, in different places, in different ways by Jesus Christ, and then someone came along with a a broom, if you like, swept them all together and put them all in one chapter because they didn't know where else to put them. Now, I can't tell you that I think that's completely wrong, and hopefully by the end of this morning, you'll understand why. But this is where we pick it up. Jesus Christ has just healed a blind guy and restored his sight. So people have questions. And then he says to them this. He says, Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other ways is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them over, out, but when he has brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him, because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him, because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters me, through me, will be saved. They will become, go in and they will go out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal, kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and he runs away. And then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as my father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen and I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay my life down and authority to take it up again. And this command I have received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were divided. Some said, he's demon-possessed and raving mad. Why should we listen to him? But others said, These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now this is really fascinating. I don't know if you've noticed the shift in language that goes all the way through, which is why some people feel this is very confused. Jesus starts off by saying, Look, I am a good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. Then he says, I am the gate. Okay? Then he basically says, Look, I'm a this kind of shepherd. Then he says, I'm that kind of shepherd. Which is why some people think, look, you know, this is just all very confused. Obviously, Jesus said different things at different times, and someone's collated them all together in John chapter 10. But what Jesus is unpacking here is actually a very carefully structured argument, because here's what he's trying to say. He starts off by saying, my sheep know my voice, and they know me. The only way you know someone's voice is when they spend a lot of time with you. You recognize someone's voice when you're familiar with them. If you have no idea what someone should sound like and you hear them on the phone, then you've got no idea who they are. You have no idea what they stand for. But there are some voices which make all of our hearts leap for joy when we hear them because we know that the person speaking to us cares for us, knows us, is committed to us, and has somehow re-established contact with us. So Jesus says, I know the sheep know my voice. Now, here's what we struggle with a little bit in the Western world because our way of looking after sheep has changed. But in the Middle East, even to this day, Shepherd's, sheep are trained to hear their, shepherd's, uh, their, their master's voice. That's how they recognize it. There's um, a story told by a friend of mine who, just after the end of the Second World War, he was a, uh, there was a colonel uh, of the British Armed Services who was stationed just outside Jerusalem. And rioting broke out amongst the people. And what the British Army did is they went out into the city and they gathered up all of the sheep and the goats and they took them into the British Army compound. Now, the reason they did that was they couldn't stop the people killing each other. But they knew that if the people started killing the sheep and the goats, people would lose their livelihood. So what they did is to stop people killing the animals in revenge. Does that make sense? They withdrew all the animals there so that once the violence died down, people could get their livelihood back. Now the trouble is is that the sheep and the goats, they have no markings on them. So they're not sprayed, they're not branded, they're not written on. There's no way of telling them apart to the trained eye. And the next day, after the riots had died down, a 12-year-old boy came up to this British Army colonel and he said, I'm here for my six sheep. Can you please give them back to me? And the colonel sort of smiled at the boy and said, look, you can see we've got over 6,000 animals there. There's no way of telling which ones are yours. So the answer is no. Now, being a good Middle Easterner, the little boy understood this wasn't the end of the discussion. This was the start of negotiations. (laughs) And so... He then said, no, 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 no. I want my sheep back. I've come to get them. I've come a long way. You need to give them to me. So then the colonel then used his his defeating argument that he felt would end the discussion. He said, how will you identify them? And the boy looked at him like he was mad and said, well, just open the gate. So the colonel was this intrigued by what was going to happen. He opened the gate. And the boy stood by the gate. He gave a little call from his voice quite loudly. He started walking away. And then from amongst these thousands of sheep, six came out and started running after him down the street because they had been trained to listen to their master's voice. They knew and recognized that voice, the voice that cared for them, looked after them, fed them, watered them, was a shepherd to them. That was the voice they could trust. Jesus is saying, I am calling people and people will come to realize that I am the one voice they can trust. They understand that they can trust him not because they're looking for something to be committed to, but they also understand that the shepherd is committed to them. We're all looking for someone who is totally committed to us. That is who Jesus Christ is. Jesus comes into this world, which is now so often bereft of leadership and so confused, where we're not even sure who to trust or why, because we're not sure if they've got our interests at heart or theirs. And all of a sudden now we see a shepherd who, as he speaks, we recognize the voice and we know he's the one who can be trusted. So Jesus starts by saying, look, people who truly hunger after God, they know me, they know my voice, because I am my Father. We are the same. They're looking for what to be committed to, and now I have come. And so now the sheep follow the one they know they can trust. It's an incredible, beautiful picture. But the guys who Jesus is talking to still don't understand what he's talking about. So then Jesus uses another metaphor, and he says, I am the gate. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, I don't know if you've ever been to that part of the world over there in the Middle East, but it gets very, very hot in the summer. So during the summer time, all of the grazing lands around the big cities, which are down on, mostly down on the plains, that all begins to die and go brown. So in order to graze your sheep and your cattle, you have to walk them up into the mountain areas where there's obviously more moisture, more water, and the sheep have something to eat. Now here's the trouble. I don't know if there are any farmers here or people who look after cattle, but if you spend five, six hours marching your sheep up a hill, you give them a few hours grazing, and you spend five, six hours marching them back, you're in trouble. Okay, that's not going to work for the sheep's development. So you have to take your sheep up into the mountain, but then you have to stay up there. So what the shepherds would do is they'll build these large enclosures. If you can imagine almost this table with a wall around it, with a gap which was just the size of a sheep in the wall. Now, the wall would be sufficiently high, and they will put very sharp, jagged rocks all the way around the edges of it to stop any wild animals leaping over the top. Does that make sense? Too high to leap over, and if they tried to climb over it, they will cut themselves on the sharp rocks. So the shepherds would take up their sheep so the sheep had some place to eat, and the shepherd would watch over them to keep them safe. And then when night began to fall, fall, fall the shepherd would find one of these pre-built pens, and he would usher all of his sheep inside. Now, there's only one point of vulnerability in that structure. It's where the gap is. So guess where the shepherd slept? The good shepherd slept in the most single, vulnerable position in that entire structure. He literally put himself at the weakest point in harm's way in order to protect his own sheep. Now, the bad shepherd, who simply wanted to stay warm, was going to be better off sleeping in the inside of the middle of the pen. Okay? Because sheep are surrounded in this soft material called wool. And it's warm, warm and it's comfortable, and you can get nice and snuggly in there, and you also stop from catching a cold. But the good shepherd literally becomes the physical door for the sheep. So when Jesus said, I am the gate, he's using a metaphor now that every single person could understand. He was saying, I bring them into that place of safety. I then sleep across the entrance. I lay down my life in that vulnerability in order to keep them safe. And then when it's safe for them to go out, I literally get up and stand out of the way, and I open the door, and then they go out. They go out, and they come in, and I keep them safe the whole time. The leader of the sheep endures the most amount of hardship, the greatest amount of pain, and is willing to bear the largest amount of sacrifice in order to look after what's been entrusted to him. Jesus is claiming to be the one through whom we literally therefore have life. He is saying, I am the gate, I am the door to life itself. You want to be safe, you want to have life, you want to know what it actually looks like? Well, then you come through me. You come through that door. Once you're there, I will keep you safe, and then I will send you out. You will actually be protected by me. And now all of a sudden we begin to see something here being fascinatingly expounded by Jesus Christ. He's looking at the leadership of his time and he's saying, you're only interested in yourselves. You're not sacrificing to look after your sheep. You're wanting your sheep to sacrifice to look after you. And then he now starts to move into what would have been the most startling part of this entire dialogue. Because then he goes on to say, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand just simply doesn't care. And here Jesus is referring back to another passage which every one of these Pharisees would have known by heart. Jesus is talking to a group of religious experts. These religious experts were all required to memorize various books of the Bible. One of those books of the Bible would have been Ezekiel. And Jesus Christ takes a quote out of Ezekiel and uses it and they all understand what he's saying. Because in Ezekiel chapter 34, God comes and he says, I am the good shepherd. In other words, God is saying, I am a good shepherd. I look after my sheep. And then he begins to do two things. He says, but the sheep have run away. He says, why have the sheep run away? He says, because bad shepherds came who didn't care for the sheep. They made themselves fat off the sheep and have made themselves rich off the sheep. And they never even thought of caring for the sheep. And they've actually driven the flock away. Now, this is incredible. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders were called to be the shepherds of their people. But in Ezekiel, it's saying, You have become bad shepherds. You have driven people away from me, says God, by the way in which you live and the way in which you conduct yourself. That's an incredible charge. It may be possible that there are one or two of you here, and at times you felt disillusioned with the church and maybe even thought you should turn your back on it. And if you feel that you've been let down, let me urge you please understand God is, unha- is unhappy with that situation and even more so than you are. One of the reasons I love to come and speak in a place like this is I've got to know Pete Hartwick over a couple of years, and he's not perfect, and if you give me a couple of hundred dollars, I'll give you a written thing attesting to that fact. (laughs) But I know where his heart is. I know he cares about people. I know it really matters to him what's happening in the lives of the people who come here. And I know he's not in this for himself. And there's something you always find when when you're inspired, when you're in the presence of people like that. In Ezekiel 34, The prophet comes along and he points to the so-called human shepherds of Israel and he says, you're driving all the people away. But God is the good shepherd. He comes and where the other shepherds drove people away, he wants to gather them together. And the good shepherd in Ezekiel 34 comes into this world, he looks for the lost sheep, he finds them, he brings them to a point of safety and he brings them home. It's a beautiful picture. And then, if you want to read Ezekiel 34 when you get home today, if you have access to a Bible, the very last line, just in case you missed the allegory, the the final verse of it says, and God says, I am the good shepherd, God, and you are the human sheep, the sheep of my pasture. So just if you didn't get the whole idea about the shepherd and the sheep being God and people, it's actually spelled out for you right at the very end, like a PS. You know, where God says, okay, just in case you didn't get this, I'm the good shepherd, and you're like human sheep. remarkable so that then brings us then to the third point of what Jesus is saying Jesus is saying you're looking down on me because I don't lord it over other people like other leaders do you think there's something wrong with me because I put myself in a position of vulnerability because I put myself in the position of weakness because I lay down my life for the sheep because I'm not looking not looking to feed myself off them but to actually feed and care for them you're looking down on me well I have news for you I am the good shepherd, says Jesus Christ. And then he starts to refer back to Ezekiel. And every Pharisee who's there knows one thing. God is the good shepherd. So when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, who on earth is he claiming to be? And the answer is, he's claiming to be God. He's saying he's come into this world and he's on a rescue mission to rescue every last sheep that there is he will lay down his life in order to bring us home. His commitment to the mission is 100%. He's not partly committed or partially interested. He is giving himself 100% to bringing about the rescue he needs to know come about. Because so many of us are literally lost in a wilderness, cultural wilderness right now, and we're not sure who to trust, who to follow, or where to go. Sometimes our lives are so messed up We even wonder whether there's any point in God even trying to save us, which is amazing. Because in Ezekiel 34, God also says something interesting. Before he critiques the bad shepherds, well, after he critiques the bad shepherds, he goes on to say something about the sheep. And he says, the sheep that have been scattered, he says, what they do is when they see food, they push one sheep out of the way and they headbutt it so they can eat it. Does that make sense? In other words... They're very competitive. And after they've had their fill, they trample all the food under their feet so the weaker sheep behind them can't eat. And then when they go to the water to drink, it says in Ezekiel, after they've drunk, I'm trying to think how we can put this politely. After they've drunk, they do stuff in the water that wouldn't want you to make to drink it. Can you imagine that? Okay, we're all on the same page. These are not good sheep. I mean, these are bad sheep. They trample on each other, they deny each other food, they destroy each other's method of life itself, the water that they need in order to stay alive. The good shepherd in Ezekiel doesn't rescue the sheep because they're good. The good shepherd in Ezekiel rescues the sheep because he is good. The sheep are bad, but he is so committed to these sheep, he will do everything to bring them back. I don't know what it means to you to be a Christian, but at the heart of the Christian faith is the understanding that God Himself came into this world in the form of Jesus Christ, and He made Himself nothing. He emptied Himself of every privilege and every right He had, and He came into this world in human form, not to lord it over us or to tell us where we fail, but to reach out a loving hand to rescue us. And here's the amazing thing about being rescued. I remember once I went swimming off the coast in England. I was a small little boy. I was living in the Middle East at the time. We were back for holidays. So I didn't understand about the currents that exist off the Scarborough Coast, which is on the northeast of England. But I can remember I was like like treading water. And all of a sudden I became aware of the fact that I was zooming all over the place. I was going sideways at great speed, then backwards, then coming in, and sideways, and backwards, and in. And I, I imagined in my head that you know, I was driving some kind of racing car and I was being zoomed all over the place. But the reality was that I was caught up in a riptide and that's why I was zooming around all like that. And then all of a sudden I could see someone panicking and pointing to red flags on the beach which to me didn't mean anything. And then all of a sudden someone coming out into that water. And I could just tell by their body language and by what they were doing that I was in real danger. I had no idea how much danger I was in until I was in the process of actually being rescued. And I can remember when I got up on that beach, even though I was quite young, I had this image in my head of someone's just saved me. And now all of a sudden I felt terrible about what was happening before. What I thought I was enjoying, I realized was in danger of killing me. The message of the Christian gospel is most of us have no idea how much danger we're in until we encounter the one who came to rescue us. And we're messing around with stuff that seemed fast and fun, and bring joy, but actually it's about to destroy us. And Jesus talks about that in John 10. There are forces in this world that only come to destroy and kill us. They want to take us out, and that's why this shepherd has to be so committed to achieve his mission, otherwise he can never even bring it about. Have you ever accepted the rescue that comes from him? To become a Christian is to fully put your trust, your faith in Jesus Christ to realize that you need him to rescue you. You need a good shepherd. You need someone who'll come into this life to get you out of the mess that you're in. And if you're willing to put your trust into him and to what he has done for you, he can pull you out of it and save you every time. Now here's the amazing thing. When you've had your life saved by somebody, you can't help but fall deeply in love with them. You will do anything because of the rescue that you've received. I have a very good friend who lives in uh, North Nigeria. I'll be going back there again in a couple of months' time. I was there recently with my travel assistant, Jim Wigglesworth, who sat down here on the front row. He's a remarkable man. With his help, we've got to meet, I don't know if you know that part of the world, but just north of there, north of Josh, the city we were in. You you may be familiar with it. A couple of years ago, 276 schoolgirls were kidnapped. Do you remember that story? and they disappeared. And there were pictures of world leaders all over the world holding up signs with the hashtag, you know, asking for the girls to be released with the number of how many had been kidnapped. That's where he lives. It's one of the most war-torn, difficult parts of this world. And it's one of the most dangerous and difficult parts of the world to actually go in. It's now controlled under a whole group of insurgents. Even to travel on the city into, even to travel from where you fly into, into that city, you almost have to take your life into your own hands. Because the, the road is so lawless that even in the process of driving in, even the army regularly get attacked and looted as they drive in there. And so now we're there with this guy, speaking in that city, both to the university and then also to some of the religious leaders around. But the reason I love Ben is because you can see his love for his people. Many, a couple of decades ago, he'd set off, um, he'd gone off on an international conference, he'd been asked to speak at a major conference, and he came back about 10 days later, and as he came home, sat around his dining room table, there were 12, 14 kids, I forget the exact number, and that wasn't at all unusual, they fed a lot of kids in their home, but then it started to get dark outside, so he turned to his wife, Gloria, and and Ben said to Gloria, Gloria, it's getting dark outside, you know how unsafe it is, we need to send the children home now, while while there's still some light, otherwise it won't be safe for them on the streets, and Gloria looked at him and said, Ben, they are home, he said, what do you mean? She said, Ben, these children had nowhere to go and they were going to die. The only way I could protect them was to adopt them. These are now our children, so they are home. So we looked at her and he said, Gloria, we need to talk. (laughs) And then they had one of those conversations that married couples sometimes have where one party feels the other party didn't properly consult them before making a major decision. (laughs) And so if any of you ever got into trouble buying, I don't know, let's say a car without speaking to your husband or wife properly, well, this excuse, this gets you out of all of that. This is a whole other level. A few months later, he was speaking at another major international conference, came home two weeks later, and this time there were over 30 children sat around the dining table. He looked at his wife and said, Gloria, what have you done? (laughs) She said, Ben, we had no choice. These kids, they were going to die. There was no way to protect them unless they became ours. So I've adopted some more. After she'd adopted 64 children... Ben said to her, Gloria, we have to stop doing this. We can't adopt anymore. And so they did stop adopting, although they've now built a dormitory out the back of their house and they look after 500 kids at the moment. Well, Ben Kawashi has been, there's been three attempted assassinations on his life by Boko Haram, the militant group. And the second time they actually came to kill him, he was out of the country, but their intelligence was correct. He should have been back in the country. But his flight had got delayed, cancelled in London. So he flew back one day later, but they didn't know that. So they went to the house, they found his wife. They beat her up and tortured her to try to find out, thinking that she was hiding her husband. And she kept saying, he's not back yet. They didn't believe her. So after they'd finished raping her, they put a gun in her mouth and pulled the trigger. So when Ben arrived home the next day, he found his wife unconscious in a pool of blood on his kitchen floor. Well, amazingly, she wasn't dead. She was whisked off to hospital and she was in a coma for the next three to four months while they gently tried to nurse her back to health. During that time, there are some advantages to being an archbishop in the Church of England, one of which is you get to meet the Queen. So when the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth II, heard what had happened to Ben, she rang him up and offered both her condolences and prayers and then offered asylum to say she would sponsor them so they could find political asylum back in the UK so they would be safe. When his wife finally came to and regained consciousness, Therefore, one of the first pieces of the news, of news that Ben shared with her was, we've been offered asylum. We can go to England. We can live in peace and safety there. And she looked at Ben and said, but Ben, who will love the children? Which is why they're still there to this day, and they won't leave. Once you've known this kind of love and rescue in your life, it completely changes you. There are all kinds of people you can meet in this world, Presidents, prime ministers, kings, queens, it's a privilege when you have the opportunity to meet them and you talk about it for a long time, but it never fundamentally changes who you are. You're still the same person, but it's impossible to meet the person of Jesus Christ and never be the same. Once you've completely given yourself to Him, your whole life changes. We live in a very empty world because I think our commitments run so deep, so shallow. And very often, even as Christians, we have to rediscover the depth of commitment that God wants in our life. God held nothing back. He didn't spare His own Son. But Jesus came into this world and gave Himself up to death, even death on the cross. And through His death on that cross and through His bodily resurrection, He actually pulls us out of the mess we're in and offers us a new life in Him. And that's the life I'd love to see you accept. This morning, I was reading a letter um, written... Um, a, actually less than 100 years after um, uh, Jesus' resurrection, well, well less than 100. It's written by a guy called Pliny the Younger. And he hates Christians. He describes them as a disease. So he, he doesn't like them. He's talking about what they do. But then he says something very interesting. He says in one of his letters, he says they sing hymns to Christ as God and they bind themselves with a solemn pledge not to wicked deeds, which is interesting because very often in the ancient world if you wanted to kill someone or do something terrible you'll take an oath. We will not eat until we've killed so-and-so. We will not, you know, you know taste honey until we've done this terrible thing. And as a matter of fact, you see it in the book of Acts with the Apostle Paul where a group of people pledge themselves not to eat or drink until they've killed him. And so very often people would come into their temples and they would make that kind of pledge. So Pliny is struck by the Christians because he says, they sing hymns to Christ as God and bind themselves with a solemn pledge not to wicked deeds, but never to commit fraud, never to commit theft, never to commit adultery, never to falsify their word or to ever deny a pledge which they have made. In other words, their life has now been so transformed that they're determined to live differently for Jesus Christ. As we draw our time here together, therefore, I'd like to leave you with two questions. First of all, To every Christian who's in this room, where are you right now in terms of your commitment with Christ? In terms of your life, your money, your heart, your family, your goals, your ambition, what is it that you may be holding on to that actually He's asking you to commit to Him? There is nothing you think you need in this world to bring you joy and fulfillment that you're not going to find a truer and better and more real thing through Jesus Christ. Whatever he asks you to give up isn't because he's against you, it's because he's for you as we've been singing up. And I'd invite you this morning to give yourself a fresh day. But it's also possible that there are some of you here today and you don't know Jesus Christ. You're on the outside looking in. Well, here's what I'm here to tell you this morning. Making a, becoming a Christian is one of the hardest things you'll ever choose to do. He's asking for everything from you. He's asking to give up every right you think you have and every demand you wish to make, everything that you think you need to cling on to. He's asking you to forsake all of that and to cling only to him. But here's the amazing thing. If you deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow Jesus Christ, you'll actually end up finding the life that you're actually looking for in the first place. Which is why Jesus said, I've come that you may have life in all of its fullness. So I'll just invite you to pray with me as we wrap this up together. Father, we want to thank you. Lord, for what we see in your life. Jesus, we're amazed at the life you lived. It's incredible, Lord, that you would come into this world and give yourself for us, that you would love us so deeply, Lord, and want to lift us up to such great height, that you would descend to such great depth on our behalf, Lord, to come and be with us, Lord, to rescue us, to walk with us, to show us the way, to be the way. Lord, we want to completely give ourselves to you. Lord Jesus Christ, where we've held back, we pray, help us to hold back no more. Father, Lord, where we think we're already in service with you, Lord, open our eyes to the vision that you have for us. Lord, show us what more you have for us and what more you're asking of us. Lord, that we may live a life, Lord, fully, fully lived out in you and through you. And Lord, Father, for those of us who feel we're just on the outside of this whole Christian thing looking in, Lord, I want to pray, Lord, that for everyone who doesn't know you today, that they may see who you truly are the Son of God, who loved us, who came into this world, Lord, to give yourself for us, Lord, that through the cross and the resurrection that we may find forgiveness for the past and a life for you for the future, and all of that to be embodied in the now. And Lord God, help us to live a life worthy of the calling we have
0: received. And we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus.